thanks for tuning in this week to Cross Connection Church Houston. We're a small church plant located in the Pasadena area. It is our mission to save the lost, to equip the saved, to serve both the lost and the saved, and finally to send the equipped. To this end, we teach through the Bible on a verse-by-verse basis, starting from the beginning of a book and working our way through all the way till the end. It is our prayer that you would grow in the knowledge of Jesus Christ through his word. Well, before Jesus ascended into heaven, he gave the disciples two final commands. The first command was to go into all the world and preach the gospel. Uh, And the second command was, before you go, you need to wait. You need to wait in Jerusalem, and I'm going to send the power of the Holy Spirit to enable you to go and preach the gospel. Well, last week we looked at how the disciples waited there in the upper room, 120 of them there in Jerusalem, and now the wait is over. As we come here to Acts chapter 2, we're going to see one of the most important events in all of Acts. It's the event that enables the early church to start. It's the event that empowers the believers there to go and fulfill this command that Jesus gave them to reach the world with the gospel. And so this morning we're going to see the circumstances surrounding what transpired with these 120 believers there in the upper room waiting for the promise of the Father, which was to send the power of the Holy Spirit. So let's see what we can learn here in Acts chapter 2, starting in verse 1. It says this, when the day of Pentecost had fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. Now, a question I want you to think about is, why did Jesus make the disciples wait? You know, he ascends into heaven, and then he says, you know what, guys, go wait in Jerusalem for the power of the Holy Spirit. Well, why not just give them the power of the Holy Spirit right then when he's ascending into heaven? Here you guys go. No need to wait. Here's the power of the Holy Spirit. Why make them wait? That's probably a question that we pose a lot of times when God makes us wait. Lord, why make us wait for whatever it is? But something important for us to understand is that God always has a purpose. And he always has a reason for why he chooses to make us wait for particular things. And he has a perfect timing in which he does things. Now, his timing is oftentimes not our timing, but his timing is always perfect. And notice that Luke tells us it's now the day of Pentecost. This is interesting. You see, God waited for a specific day. He waited for the day of Pentecost to fulfill this promise that he would send the Holy Spirit to baptize or empower these believers. You see, God's plan to redeem mankind through the death of Jesus Christ, through his resurrection, God's plan to establish the church, God's plan to come back for the church, God's plan to come a second time, all these things are spoken of very clearly in the Old Testament. But one of the most fascinating ways in which these things are revealed to us is through the seven Jewish festivals, feasts that uh, God had established for the nation of Israel. You see, all seven of these feasts really had a dual purpose. The first purpose was to look back, to look back and remember something that God had specifically done for the nation of Israel, and they remembered that, and they would uh, oftentimes sacrifice or do things to honor God for what he had done for them. But the second purpose was to point them and to prepare them for something that God was going to do through Jesus, the Messiah, in the future. 
Now, many Jews didn't recognize or see the, the future fulfillment of these things, so they often would just look uh, in the past and, and celebrate these feasts about things that God had done. But God was preparing them through these feasts for something that he was going to do in the future. So there was this dual purpose. I want you to look back at what I have done, but I also want to point you towards something that I'm going to do through the Messiah, through Jesus. Now, the chart that I put up on the screen here shows what the seven feasts are, but it also shows underneath them their fulfillment in Christ. And uh, I just want to quickly go through that. And the purpose of going through this is to reveal that God had a specific timing for these things to transpire. We could spend uh, many teachings on each one of these things. And when we go through the book of Exodus and other things, we will get into them more um, specifically. But I just want to note them for you because I think they're important and interesting. To, to note that the first feast is the feast of Passover, uh, and we've noted that before as Jesus took the Passover with his disciples, and they were looking back. Remember Exodus, the, the angel of death passed over the homes that had the blood sprinkled on the doorposts and lintel, and so they're remembering how God passed over them, did not kill the firstborn because of the sacrifice and the blood that was on there, and this feast points to Jesus our Passover lamb, the one who shed his blood for us, that our sins could be paid for on the cross. And we noted in the book of Luke that Jesus was killed, sacrificed on that specific day of Passover. He was truly the Passover lamb for us. Well, the second feast is the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and it followed right with the Passover. And the Feast of Unleavened Bread was also a reminder back to the book of Exodus and God delivering uh, the Israelites from Egypt. Uh, they didn't have time to wait for the dough to rise, and so they had unleavened bread. And they would, they would take this as a reminder of that, but also in Scripture, leaven is a picture of sin. And this is significant because Jesus, we know, is sinless. That's the reason that he could pay the price for our sins on the cross. And something that's very interesting, and if you go to Israel today and Jews who celebrate this, and they don't really have an answer for why they do this, but they wrap up the unleavened bread and they go and they hide it and they have the children, they go and they find it for them. Uh, and this is a very interesting picture of Jesus, the sinless one who once, obviously, he was crucified, was wrapped in burial clothes, uh, laid in a tomb. And so it points to Jesus' burial. The third feast that the feast uh, is the feast of first fruits. Uh, and this took place right after uh, the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Uh, and this was a time to offer to God the harvest was happening right then. And you would give him the first fruits of the harvest. The best went to God. Uh, and it was at the start of the feast that Jesus rose from the dead. Uh, Easter is something that we've kind of adopted more from a pagan holiday. We probably should have kept it with the first fruits, but we've used that term. We don't use the same kind of, obviously, worship as a pagan holiday, but we've adopted the name. But it happened right there on the Feast of First Fruits. Uh, and in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Paul tells us this pointed uh, to uh, the resurrection of Jesus, and it's also a promise that since Jesus rose from the dead, we can be confident that we too, when we die, will rise and be given new glorified bodies. The fourth feast was the Feast of Pentecost, and that's the feast that we'll be looking at here in Acts chapter 2. This feast occurred 50 days after the Feast of First Fruits, and I point that out because we're wondering how long did the disciples wait? Well, if you remember from the book of Luke, 
After Jesus rose from the dead, he spent 40 days with the disciples. And so that leaves how many days for you mathematicians? Ten more. Uh, And so the disciples were waiting in the upper room for 10 days. And I'm sure that felt like a pretty long time waiting for 10 days for the Lord to pour out his spirits, as we're going to see him doing in just a few minutes. Now, during the Feast of Pentecost, the Jews were to offer a new grain offering and also to thank the Lord for the harvest that he had provided for them. But it was also a celebration looking back on the fact that God gave the Jews the law. And that was something that was so important that remembered you gave us something so vital to us. Well, now we're going to see that God is going to give something vital again. He's going to give his Holy Spirit to believers. uh, And they're also going to see a harvest, not a harvest of food, but a harvest of souls who come to know Jesus Christ. And so for the Old Testament Jews, the Feast of Pentecost was a time to remember and thank God for the harvest and to remember uh, the law, but now they're going to have a whole new meaning. They're going to remember the harvest of souls and they're going to remember the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. The fifth feast is the Feast of Trumpets. This was a feast to remember the first trumpet that God gave there on Mount Sinai right before the giving of the law. And and how they would celebrate this was throughout the day, they didn't know it was going to happen or when it was going to happen. The priest would blow a trumpet and everyone would leave what they were doing and they would go and gather there at the temple. And this feast points to the rapture of the church. The rapture is always associated in scripture with the blowing of a loud trumpet. When the heavenly trumpet is blown, the Bible talks about God is going to come and instantaneously receive believers to himself. The sixth feast is the feast uh, or the day of atonement. This was the one day of a year when the high priest would go into the Holy of Holies and to atone for the sins of the nation of Israel. This feast points to the second coming of Jesus. Because at this point in time, you do have some Messianic Jews, some Jews who do believe that Jesus is their Messiah. But for the most part, Jews have rejected that Jesus is their Messiah. But when he comes again, the Bible makes very clear, then they're going to realize, then they're going to recognize who their true Messiah is, and they're going to believe in him, and their sins once again will be atoned for. So this points to Jesus' second coming. The seventh feast is the Feast of Tabernacles. This was a, to remember how God took care of the, the Israelites in the wilderness and they had to pitch tents uh, for that time where they were there. Well, this points to the millennial or thousand-year reign of Christ when he's going to come and tabernacle or dwell with us here on earth once again. So as you can see, these seven feasts not only pointed back to what God did in the past for the nation of Israel, but it's also pointing to the future of what God was going to do through Jesus. Now, the reason I took the time to share this is, first, I think it's fascinating. I think it's important to understand. I would encourage those of you who like to study Scripture to look into these things. I think it's very interesting to to deepen your knowledge of. But second, I want you to see that God purposely waited to give the Holy Spirit until the day of Pentecost because God had a specific time frame. He had already established it through the feast. He was pointing people to that, even though they might have not recognized. And he says, oh, I got a time. I've had a time for a while. And it's going to be on the day of Pentecost that I'm going to pour out the Holy Spirit for the first believers there. So Jesus' followers, 120 of them, are in the upper room. They've been waiting for 10 days. And now let's see what transpires as this promise is finally fulfilled, starting in verse 2 of Acts chapter 2. And suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. Then there appeared to them divided tongues as of fire, 
And one sat on each of them, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now, I want you to notice something here. Right before this outpouring of the Holy Spirit happens, the thing that they're ultimately waiting for, right before that transpires, you see two very interesting and significant things happen. And so imagine you're the disciples. You've been waiting for 10 days, and we noticed last week how they were waiting. They spent so much of their time in prayer and in the Word. And and so 10 days have transpired, and all of a sudden, something happens. The first thing that happens is this sound of a rushing mighty wind fills the whole house. Now, the sound of a rushing mighty wind is is often associated with power or invisible power because you can't see the wind, but you can see the effects of the wind. And if you've ever been near a tornado or something like that, the the sound of that wind uh, is quite powerful. Here is actually the sound of a tornado. When you hear something like this, you associate it with power. You recognize that there is power behind it. Because you know it has the power to rip up your house if you're not careful. And so they're sitting there in this upper room, and a sound probably very similar to that fills the room, this sound of a mighty rushing wind. And I'm sure it got everybody's attention of, oh my goodness, what's happening? Is it about to transpire right now? But the thing that happens next, I'm sure would have got their attention even more than the sound of a rushing mighty wind. They might have just thought, you know, it's a really windy day. But now what happens is something that they could not miss. We're told, uh, well, before I even get into that, I think something interesting about the wind here is both in Hebrew and Greek, the words translated wind are the same words translated spirits, and there's uh, an interesting connection with that. But in John chapter 3, verse 8, we're told from Jesus, the wind blows where it wishes and you hear the sound of it, but cannot tell where it comes from and where it goes. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. The Holy Spirit, like the wind, is mighty in power, but we can't see him. We only see the effects that he brings. And one of the greatest effects is when he affects our lives personally, when he empowers us to live for Jesus Christ. So as followers of Jesus there in the upper room, they they have this sound of a mighty rushing wind, and then something else transpires. We're told, and I don't know what it looked like, but I found this picture just to kind of give us some kind of visual, that there appeared on Jesus' followers divided tongues as of fire, and one sat on each one of them. And I'm sure that really got their attention. Here you hear the sound of mighty rushing wind, and you're looking around and thinking, whoa, there's fire on each of us here. You know, what is going on? Now, remember in the Gospel of Luke that John the Baptist prophesied concerning how Jesus would baptize. John's ministry was a ministry of baptism, of repentance, but he pointed to Jesus and he spoke about how he would baptize people. And I want to remind you of that. Luke chapter 3, verse 16, it says, John answered, saying to all, Indeed, I baptize you with water, but one mightier than I is coming, whose sandal strap I am not worthy to loose. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. See, John was prophesying and pointing to Jesus saying, he's going to come and he's going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit. I'm just baptizing you with water. He's going to baptize you in a much more significant way. But notice he doesn't just say the Holy Spirit, but also with fire. John's prophesying that when Jesus baptized them, it wouldn't just be with the Holy Spirit, but also with fire. 
You know, it's interesting if you look in the Old Testament, there's many instances where there is a sacrifice being given to God and he himself provides fire from heaven to consume the sacrifice really as a sign and his approval uh, of it. And I think it's interesting now as you see these followers of Jesus waiting in the upper room and the Lord once again sends fire from heaven and it's not to consume a dead sacrifice but to come upon living sacrifices for him. Now, under the Old Covenant, the Holy Spirit really mainly rested on God's people as a nation more than as individuals. And here in the New Covenant, one of the blessings that we see, we see many blessings from the Old Covenant uh, to the New Covenant, but instead of just being on the nation as generally, it is on specific individuals. Notice here in verse 3, we're told that the tongues of fire sat upon each of them. Now, as amazing as that might have been to hear this mighty rushing wind and to see these tongues of fire, really that's just, you know, leading up to the real thing that's about to happen, the real outpouring which is about to take place, and that is the fulfillment that Jesus said would happen, that the Holy Spirit would be given to them. And so as they're sitting there, as they're waiting, and they hear this mighty rushing wind, and they see these uh, tongues of fire, now all of a sudden the Holy Spirit comes upon them. And I think it's important for us to note here, Jesus gave them a command, go into all the world and preach the gospel. And we noted that was an impossible command for them to do in their own power. There was no way that they were able to fulfill that command in their own strength and their own power. And that's why Jesus says, before you go and try to fulfill that, you need to wait because I am going to give you the power that will enable you to actually fulfill what I've just commanded you to do. And now that power is going to come and fill these followers of Jesus there in the upper room. And so the Holy Spirit comes, and we're told that something supernatural transpires. We're told they began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. So in response to the filling of the Holy Spirit, we have these 120 people there in the upper room. They just heard this mighty rushing wind. They see these tongues of fire. And now all of a sudden, they're all speaking in languages that, They've never been taught, that they didn't know, and this is a way in which the Holy Spirit, as he comes upon them, manifests himself miraculously through them. Now, a crowd of people, they, they hear Jesus' followers speaking in these different languages, speaking in tongues, and they have basically two different responses to what they hear. Let's note what their responses are in verses 5 through 13. And they're dwelling in Jerusalem, Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And when the sound occurred, the multitude came together and were confused because everyone heard them speak in his own language. And they were all amazed and marveled, saying to one another, Look, are not all these who speak Galileans? And how is it that we hear each in our own language in which we were born? Parthians and Medes, Elamites, those dwelling in Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, and parts of Libya adjoining Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabs. We hear them speaking in our own tongues the wonderful works of God. So they were all amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, whatever could this mean? Others mock, saying that they are full of new wine. So Luke starts by telling us as they're there, 
There's this group of people. There's 120 in the upper room, and now there's this group of people that are around that building, and they hear 120 people speaking in all these different languages, and they're kind of have two different responses. Now, something important to note is the Feast of Pentecost was one of three Jewish feasts that men, Jewish men, were required to come to. Uh, And so Josephus, the Jewish historian, said that usually uh, at that time, Jerusalem had about 150,000 people in it. Uh, The Passover would explode the town to about 3 million, and Pentecost would also explode the town to about 2 million. Uh, And so you have a huge amount of people there that don't actually live in Jerusalem because they're coming to the temple and they're coming to the city to uh, celebrate this feast. So there's this large crowd of people that are gathering there, and they hear what's going on, and, and they're a bit confused. And the thing that confuses them is everyone who's coming from these different areas, different nations, say, well, wait a second. We hear people in there speaking in our native tongue. We hear them speaking in a language that we get and understand. But they say, well, aren't everybody in that room Galileans? Thinking, don't they just speak Hebrew? How is it that they're speaking these other languages that we speak, that is our native tongue? Imagine if you went down to Mexico and you went to a house where you knew the people only spoke Spanish. And as you walk by that house, you hear people speaking in English and in French and Italian and Chinese and Japanese and German. You would be like, what's going on here? You know, I thought these people only spoke Spanish. How is it that I'm hearing all of these other languages being spoken? I think we would probably respond in the same way as these people there, just like, this is odd that these Galileans who only speak Hebrew are, are speaking all these other languages. What's going on here? Well, Luke shares with us that there are 15 different nationalities. He lists them for us. Here's a map where those different nationalities came from. And as you can see here, you have these different nationalities. They're all there. They speak other languages besides Hebrew. They're hearing these people speak in their language. But notice what verse 11 says, because I think it's important what they're hearing. We're told in verse 11, We hear them speaking in our own tongue the wonderful works of God. So as they come by this house, they're hearing the wonderful works of God being proclaimed in a language that is their language, that is something that they aren't expecting to hear when they come to Jerusalem, spoken by Galileans who only speak Hebrew. So the Holy Spirit miraculously empowers these believers to speak in tongues, to speak in a language that they never learned, that they didn't know. But notice they're speaking in such a way that is focused on the wonderful works of God. And now there are two responses from the crowd as they hear Jesus' followers speaking in tongue. The first is a response of amazement. Well, this is amazing. I can't believe that you know, I'm hearing my own language. I'm hearing the wonderful works of God in my own language, and they're, they're amazed by it. But then there's another response, which was one of mockery. They say, oh, they might just be full of wine. They're just drunk. That's what's going on. We've got a bunch of drunkards up there, which really doesn't you know, explain how in the world they know all these other languages. But, but that was their kind of conclusion. Oh, they're just drunk. You know, that's just what's going on. And we're going to see as Peter comes and preaches, the first thing he says is, we're not drunk. It's the middle of the day. Come on, we're not drinking. But um, that was one of the, the mindsets that people have. 
Now, throughout church history, there have basically been these same two response regarding this specific gift, which is the gift of tongues. There is a response of amazement, and there's a response of mockery. One thinks, wow, this is pretty amazing what God's doing, and one thinks, wow, this is just weird, and, and maybe people are just crazy and drunk. And one of the reasons that there's a conclusion that people are crazy and drunk is, unfortunately, in the church world today, there's a lot of abuse of this gift. Uh, and therefore, and I don't even think it's actually being used. I wouldn't say it's the actual gift. I think it's people trying to manufacture it in such a way. But so there is a lot of problems with it, which I understand, and I actually grew up seeing those problems. So I can see why some people would conclude it's crazy, people are drunk, but I want us to know what the Bible has to say, uh, because the Bible does speak about the gift of tongues uh, and what its purpose is, and so let's note that since we see this transpiring here with these followers of Jesus. In 1 Corinthians chapter 14, uh, chapters 12 and 14 reveal a lot about spiritual gifts to us, but 14 talks about the gift of tongues. In verse 2 it says, for he who speaks in a tongue does not speak to men but to God. For no one understands him. However, in the spirit, he speaks mysteries. But he who prophesies speaks edification and exhortation and comfort to men. He who speaks in a tongue edifies himself, but he who prophesies edifies the church. I wish you all spoke with tongues, but even more that you prophesied. For he who prophesies is greater than he who speaks with tongues, unless indeed he interprets that the church may receive edification." So these verses reveal a couple of important things about this gift of tongues that I want you to note. First of all, tongues is something that is directed to God. We see this here in the book of Acts. What are people hearing? The wonderful works of God is something directed to God about God, uh, and we see that as the description here. Prophecy is the opposite of that. It's God giving a specific message to man. Tongues is men ultimately praising uh, God. So it's directed to God. Prophecy directed to man, tongues directed to God. This is one of the issues you see in some churches where they try to use tongues directed to people, and it's like, well, that's actually not tongues. That is prophecy, uh, and so that's not how it works. But um, So first of all, tongues is something that's directed to God. Secondly, the words spoken in a tongue, we're told, are a mystery to the person speaking, just like it was here for those uh, in the upper room. They don't know these languages. They've never been taught these languages, so they're speaking something that they have no clue what they're saying, uh, which can be obviously a little bit of a scary reality. The person exercising the gift of tongues doesn't know that. So that's another thing that we need to note. Third, tongues edifies the the person who is speaking, but prophesying edifies the church. Since no one can understand what you're saying, they can't be edified by what you're saying. When you prophesy, it's clear. God says this, you need to do this, and so you can be edified by it. Now, You know, Paul goes on to say, unless it's interpreted, if the tongue's interpreted, just like if I were to be speaking in Spanish and someone was interpreting it so you could understand it, although let's ask Spanish for most of you be like, well, I'd understand it anyway. Okay, if I was speaking in German uh, and it needed to be translated. So if it's translated for us, then we can be edified because we can know what's being said. And so that's what he's saying. Unless there's an interpretation, then the body's not edified. It's not built up. And so the person speaking is the only one built up, but everyone else isn't. And this is why Paul gives specific commands as to how to use the gift of tongues. He gives specific commands as to how to use all spiritual gifts. And for churches who love to exercise spiritual gifts, I grew up in one, this is something I always find, why don't you use this? Because you use 1 Corinthians chapters 12 and 14 to to tell people about spiritual gifts. But in those chapters, Paul makes very clear the order in which they should be used 
And in my experience, a lot of churches just throw that right out the window and say, well, forget the order. Let's just indulge in these things. Well, there's a specific order for the purpose of what? God gave these gifts for people to be edified. And if they're not using this order, then that edification doesn't happen. Well, notice what we're told here in verses uh, 27 and 28 of 1 Corinthians chapter 14. If anyone speaks in a tongue, let there be two or at the most three, each in turn, and let one interpret. But if there is no interpreter, let him keep silent in the church and let him speak to himself and to God. So the Bible makes very clear. Here's order. In a church service, if you're going to have tongues... One at a time, and at the most three people speaking in tongues. And after that first person speaks, wait for an interpretation. And if there's no one in the room who has the gift that God has given to interpret the tongue, he says, then no one else speak in tongues. Because then the church isn't going to be edified because no one can understand what's being said. He just says, you just speak just quietly yourself to God, but don't speak aloud because no one can interpret it. And that's the order in which Paul establishes because the ultimate goal of all these spiritual gifts is that the body might be edified. And so when you go into a a church service, I grew up in it, and you have uh, 20, 30 people all speaking in tongues at once, you can understand, well, this is crazy, there's no edification, no one knows what's being said, what's going on, and the reality is they're not following the biblical pattern, it's not biblical to exercise the gift in that way, and that's why a lot of times people think, man, I just want to steer clear of that gift completely because it's just so weird. Well, it is weird if it's not used right, but every gift is weird if it's not used correctly and not used the way in which God has designed it to be used. So all these people who often abuse the gift of tongues, they also teach something that I think is unfortunate. They say, well, the gift of tongues is the sign that you have been baptized or empowered by the Holy Spirit. If you haven't spoken in tongues, guess what? You've missed out. You don't have it because that's the proof. If you haven't spoken in tongues, you haven't been baptized, you haven't been empowered, and so you need to do that. And that's where you get a lot of people manufacturing it. A lot of people just trying to make it happen because they think, well, this is a sign. i got to do something. I'll just start blabbering about something. But, uh, and I grew up in that. And, and you, you have this pressure to do something that ultimately the Spirit of God oftentimes isn't empowering you to do because, once again, 1 Corinthians 12, the chapters that they use clearly says, do all have the gift of healing? No. Do all have the gift of tongues? No. Do all interpret? No. The reality is not everybody has been given this gift, and so it's definitely not the sign that you've been baptized with the Holy Spirit. So in these first 13 verses, we see Jesus fulfilling his promise to baptize or to fill the disciples, his followers, with the Holy Spirit. But I want to take some time as we conclude this morning looking at a few things about the baptism or the empowering of the Holy Spirit. And and the reason I want to do that is because within the church world, there are several different views concerning this. And and for some, this is a a heated debate. And so I don't like to, to deal with controversial issues without at least sharing with you kind of the main thoughts that different groups have concerning it. And so we're not going to get into it in a great depth, but I do want to give you uh, the main views and the main thoughts so you can kind of understand, okay, we're we're seeing this event happen, but what are people in the church world saying uh, about it for us today? So first of all, we get this term baptism of the Holy Spirit, uh, and we've been seeing it, obviously. We've been seeing it in Luke. We've been seeing it in Acts, but uh, we take that term because that's the term that we see used. Luke 3.16, John answered, saying to all, I indeed baptize you with water, but one mightier than I is coming, whose sandal strap I am not worthy to loose. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire, and so there's this connection with the baptism and the Holy Spirit. Uh, Jesus Acts 1.5, 
Jesus said, for John truly baptized you with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So John said it, Jesus said it, and they use this connection with, you know, it doesn't, you know, it's semantics whether you use the term baptism or empowering. You know, the reality is it's an empowering work of the Holy Spirit, but the term that we see in Scripture is this term baptism, and so that's usually the term that many people give to it. Now, when it comes to the baptism of the Holy Spirit or the empowering of the Holy Spirit, there are basically three main views. Uh, And all three of these views agree on a basic definition of what the baptism of the Holy Spirit is. So let's just start with the definition that all three groups give. It's when the Holy Spirit empowers a believer to serve and obey God, which is often accompanied by spiritual gifts. I'll say that again. When the Holy Spirit empowers a believer to serve and obey God, which is often accompanied by spiritual gifts. Now, the first view that Christians and many different denominations have concerning the baptism of the Holy Spirit is it was just for the early church. They believe that the empowering work that we see in the book of Acts and the gifts of the Holy Spirit were just for them. And so after the early church was established, now the the baptism of the Holy Spirit, the the gifts of the Holy Spirit, they're, they're no longer for us today. Now, whenever you conclude that something the Bible clearly teaches is not for us today, the burden of proof then comes back on you. You need to go into scripture and you need to find verses that clearly say this has ceased or this will cease at this point in time. Uh, because when the Bible teaches something and you see it actually happening among believers, and if you're going to say, wait, it's no longer happening, the burden of proof is on you to say, well, and this is why, biblically. For example, if I were to say, you know what, we see in the early church, they prayed a lot. You know, it was something that was something that just really was something they did, but you know what, prayer is not for us today. It was something that ended with the early church. We know that, that God you know, gave them that privilege and they utilized that privilege, but that is something that, that is not for us today. Now, if I were to make that claim, then the burden of proof would be on me to go into the scriptures and to prove, well, when and where does prayer cease for the believers today? Obviously, I couldn't do that because there's no scripture that says that because prayer is for us today. But in the same way, those who say, okay, the baptism of the Holy Spirit, the gifts of the Spirit are no longer for us today. There has to be a passage of scripture, verses that they can come to to say, here's where it says they've ceased. And this is why we can now hold to that. Well, there is only one verse. They recognize that they need that. There's one verse that they go to and they only have one. And I will share this verse with you and you can look at what it says. 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verses 8 through 10, it says this, But whether there are prophecies, they will fail. Whether there are tongues, they will cease. Whether there is knowledge, it will vanish away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when that which is perfect has come, then that which is in part will be done away with. Verse 10 is their key verse. Those who say that the Holy Spirit and the baptism of the Spirit uh, are not for today, they try to use verse 10 to say, here's where the Bible says it's stopped. It's, It's no longer for us today. They claim that that which is perfect is referring to the New Testament. So their claim is once the New Testament was completed, that is the perfect thing that has been given. And so now they don't need the gifts of the Spirit or the baptism of the Spirit anymore. And so God gave that just for the early church because the New Testament wasn't all the way done. And so they needed that extra power to complete what God wanted. But now the New Testament's given and it's not for us today. 
Now, almost every commentator agrees that that which is perfect is referring to Jesus' return, not the finishing of the New Testament. Every time in Greek, almost, that you see this word perfect is always, almost always translated and connected with Jesus and oftentimes with his return as well. So personally, I think it's clear this is not speaking about the fact that the Holy Spirit would stop empowering believers. But you know what? Those who do hold to this, I find that they have another issue, another inconsistency. Notice one of the things this verse say will cease is knowledge. But when you talk to those who say, well, well, we still have knowledge today, but they also believe in other gifts that we still have today, like, well, isn't it a spiritual gift to be able to teach? Well, yes, it is, but do you still teach? Yes, we do. Do you believe that you are anointed to teach? Yes. Okay, so you believe that that one still exists. You believe that the gift to pastor still exists. You believe the gift to evangelize still exists. See, what you understand here and you need to get is really what they're saying is what they kind of term the sign gifts like healing and tongues and prophecy. These, what they would say are more supernatural when they're all supernatural, are the ones that don't exist anymore, but teaching and preaching, and pastoring, and evangelism, and knowledge, those are things that we do have today. But the problem is you can't have it both ways. If you claim that this verse says that they're done, then they're all done. You can't say, well, the ones that I don't like are done, and the ones that I want to keep, I'm still going to keep. Uh, it doesn't work that way. If you want to claim this verse is saying what you say, then you need to be consistent and say, we got nothing. No anointing to teach, no anointing to pastor, no knowledge. It's all gone, which obviously they wouldn't want to hold to. Uh, And so obviously I don't think that verse speaks of that, but I also think if you hold to that verse, it brings some other inconsistencies with it. But that is the only verse in Scripture that they could find that would try to give them an out to say, well, there's no more gifts for today. Well, there's two other views uh, about, you know, the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Uh, and, And these views... Are, are very similar. Um, the first view uh, is they're not for the day. The second and third view agree that the baptism is for today, but the difference is when. When do you get it? They both agree that for believers today, we, we should have the empowering of the Holy Spirit, the gifts of the Holy Spirit. The question is, when does that happen? The first group believes that it happens the moment you accept Christ, you're, infilled, you're filled with the Holy Spirit, and you're empowered by the Holy Spirit right at that moment. The other group believes when you accept Christ, you're filled with the Holy Spirit, but the empowering work of the Holy Spirit is a separate event beyond salvation. Now, both views uh, have, you know, good, interesting thoughts to them, but I think um, as we look at some verses, the debate as to whether or not it happens right when you accept Christ or something that's a little later uh, is actually just seen in Scripture. So we're just going to look at a few verses in Acts, and, and you can kind of conclude what you want. Uh, there are three Greek prepositions that are important for us to understand as we look at how the Holy Spirit connects with people. And those three Greek prepositions are para, which is with or, or alongside of, uh, en, which is in you, or epi, which is upon you. Now, in John chapter 14, we see the first two Greek prepositions translated with and in. Notice what we're told in John chapter 14, verses 16 and 17. And I will pray the Father, this is Jesus speaking, and he will give you another helper, speaking of the Holy Spirit, that he may abide with you forever, the spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. Two different things, okay? So Jesus makes very clear, right now the Holy Spirit's with you, just like he's with everybody in the world, but he's going to be in you. He's going to indwell you, something that's going to be new for you, okay? 
Later on in the Gospel of John, Jesus says something very important. John chapter 20, verse 22. And when Jesus had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. So this is after Jesus has risen from the dead in those 40 days that he's with them. He has this time and he says to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. Now, I think when Jesus says, receive the Holy Spirit, that you would receive the Holy Spirit uh, right when he says that. And so I believe here they've gone from the with to now in, received. The Holy Spirit is now in them, okay? Well, now you have, um, so you have with, you have in, and notice this third Greek preposition, which is upon, which we noted in Acts chapter 1, verse 8. But you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. So we noted that the Holy Spirit was with the disciples. And then the Holy Spirit was in the disciples in John chapter 20. And now Jesus says the Holy Spirit will be upon you here in Acts chapter 1. Well, what we just looked at this morning in Acts chapter 2 is the event where the Holy Spirit truly does come upon the disciples as they are baptized or empowered with the Holy Spirit. But now let's look at some more verses in Acts and what we see and what groups we see. This is something that's interesting. Acts chapter 4, verse 31. And when they had prayed, the place where they assembled together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God with boldness. Now, the interesting thing here is this is the same group, for the most part, that was in the upper room. Okay, so the same group that already had the empowering of the Holy Spirit to go out They're fearful because what has just transpired is the religious leaders say, you keep speaking in Jesus' name and we're going to kill you. And obviously there was fear, like maybe we shouldn't go out and do this because I don't want to die. Well, the Holy Spirit empowers them to give them boldness to go and proclaim the gospel. And so this group that had already received the Holy Spirit, they're already saved and been empowered by the Holy Spirit, once again is empowered again to go out with boldness. Acts 8, verse 14 through 17. Now, when the apostles who were at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent Peter and John to them, who, when they had came down, prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For as yet, he had fallen upon none of them. They had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. So here we see people in Samaria. They've already believed in Jesus, and they've already been baptized in the name of Jesus, so they're clearly believers in Jesus, but yet the power of the Holy Spirit hasn't come upon them yet. And so Peter and John come down and say, wait, you know, has the power of the Holy Spirit come on? No, well, they lay hands on them, they pray for them, and all of a sudden we see this empowering work of the Holy Spirit come on people who already accepted Jesus and already were baptized in his name. So once again, this baptism or empowering of the Holy Spirit came after someone was already saved. Now, probably the most famous person in the book of Acts, Paul, he was Saul, Acts 9, 17 and 18. And Ananias went his way and entered the house and laying his hands on him, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you came, has sent me that you may receive your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately there fell from his eyes something like scales, and he received his sight at once, and he arose and was baptized. On the road to Damascus, Saul, we're going to see this soon, has this encounter with Jesus Christ. He gets saved there, but he's blinded, and for three days he's there uh, blinded, and then God sends this man, Ananias, to come and pray for Paul, who's already accepted Christ, already believes in him, and now he is filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, 
I want to give you know, credence to the other view. There is an example of the Holy Spirit baptizing believers at the moment they accept Christ. Acts chapter 10, verses 44 through 47. While Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit fell upon all those who heard the word, and those of the circumcision who believed were astonished, as many as came with Peter, because the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out on the Gentiles also. For they heard them speak with tongues and magnify God. Then Peter answered, Can anyone forbid water that they should not be baptized for uh, who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? So Peter comes and he's preaching the gospel and they believe the gospel. They accept Christ and right at that moment, the Holy Spirit not only indwells them like he does for anyone who accepts Christ, but also empowers them. And what do they do? They start speaking in tongues, just like we see here of the 120 in the upper room. Now, I think this was something maybe more for the Jews than it was a pattern that we regularly see, because as we see, it took God a lot to get Peter to even go here. He had to have this vision because they just thought, you know what, it's just for the Jews. Salvation is just for the Jews. The power of the Holy Spirit is just for the Jews, not for the Gentiles. And so God had to show him, no, 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 don't call unclean what I have cleansed. You go to the Gentiles. And when he goes, he's preaching the gospel. And all of a sudden they believe and they're empowered. And notice we're told they're astonished. Because these Jews did not believe that the Gentiles would get this power. And so they're just like, whoa. And then Peter says, well, can we forbid that they be baptized like in the water? Because obviously they've already been baptized with the Holy Spirit. God obviously has accepted them. And so this might have been one of those circumstances where obviously God was trying to help them recognize this. But it is an occurrence where we see instantaneously right when they accept the Holy uh, Christ, they're empowered at the same moment. So I think it's clear as we look at different examples, we could look at more, but there's no reason to, uh, that you see there's people who accept Christ, which means they're filled with the power of the Spirit, and then a separate occurrence of this other empowering, a continual empowering of the Holy Spirit. And also we see an instance where right when they accepted the Lord, they're not only filled with the Spirit, but empowered all at one time. So these three Greek prepositions translated with, in, and upon, they're very important. The Holy Spirit is with everyone before accepting Christ. He convicts the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. He's, he's there with everyone. But once you accept Christ, he now dwells in you. But the upon, when the Holy Spirit comes upon your life to empower you, is something that often happens after you accept him. Now, I think that the key for us to recognize is the empowering work of the Holy Spirit is something that we should desire and ask the Lord for. Notice what Luke eleven thirteen tells us. If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, this is Jesus speaking, how much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? One of the greatest gifts that God gives is the, the Holy Spirit and the power that he brings with him. And Jesus is saying, you know what? If you, being evil, know how to good give gifts to your kids, how much more a perfect heavenly Father will give the Holy Spirit to those who say, I need that. Empower me. Now, obviously, we've noted several times that God wants to empower those in the upper room to reach the world with the gospel, and I believe he wants to empower us to reach our culture and the world with the gospel as well. But it's not just for that. Don't just think, well, the power of the Holy Spirit is only for preaching the gospel. Obviously, that's one aspect of it. But to obey God, to live for Christ, you need the power of the Holy Spirit. I mean, John chapter 15, a very difficult passage to put into practice because Jesus says, without me, you can do nothing. His power has to be given to us for us to be able to do anything for him. 
I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. We need the power of the Holy Spirit in everyday life if we want to be godly men, godly women, if we want to be godly fathers, godly mothers, godly husbands, you know, godly wives. We want to be godly friends. We want to be godly co-workers. I mean, we need the power of the Holy Spirit to do that because in and of ourselves, we don't have the power. In and of ourselves, we don't have what we need to accomplish what God has called us to accomplish. Vance Havner said this, we're not going to move this world by criticism of it, nor by conformity to it, but by men and women empowered by the Holy Spirit reaching the world for Christ. This world is in desperate need of Holy Spirit-empowered followers of Jesus. The disciples amazingly reached the world with the gospel. Why? Because of the power of the Holy Spirit that enabled them to do that. One of my favorite Old Testament passages Zechariah 4, 6, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. It's not by our might. It's not by our power that we're going to accomplish anything. It's by the power of the spirit of God that's going to enable us to do what we need to do. And if you've been struggling, not just in sharing the gospel, but maybe struggling as a parent or struggling in your marriage or struggling to be a godly person I would say, you know what, one of the things that we have given to us, which is a wonderful privilege, is the power of the Holy Spirit to enable us. And as we already looked at in Luke, Jesus just says, ask for it. Ask and I will give you. I will enable you. I've mentioned many times, God doesn't command us to do something that he's not going to give us the power to accomplish. He's not sitting up there in heaven going, I just told you to reach the world with the gospel and you have no chance and this is going to be so fun to watch you just fall on your face. No, he's saying, I'm calling you to do things and I will empower you to accomplish everything that I've called you to do. Love your wife as life, uh, Christ loved the church. <laughs> what? I mean, that's a huge command. Submit to your husband. What? Uh, love your enemies. Are you kidding me? God calls us to do things, and he says, you know what? But I will empower you to accomplish these things that I've called you to do. Can we have the worship team come on up, please? You know, we're going to close this morning, and I mentioned this as we announced Ray and Lee as elders a couple weeks back of just more time of prayer. But uh, Lee and and, uh, Ray and I are going to be at the back this morning, uh, and we're just available to pray for you, uh, for anything that you have in your life that you need prayer for. But, you know, obviously, if you want to put into practice what we've been talking about this morning, if you feel like, you know what, I need the power of the Holy Spirit in my life. Uh, I need him to empower me to do what he's called me to do. We'd be happy to pray for that. We'd be happy to pray for anything anything that you have need of. So as the worship team leads in worship, we'll be back there. Uh, if you want to take advantage of prayer, uh, we're there for you. If you just want to worship, uh, you're, you know, feel free to do that as well. Uh, but we're just going to take this time uh, to do that, and we'll just uh, go ahead and take some time to worship the Lord and, and pray. So uh, we're available uh, to lift up your requests if you like them. Thanks for tuning in this week to Cross Connection Church Houston. We're a small church plant located in the Pasadena area. It is our mission to save the lost, to equip the saved, to serve both the lost and the saved, and finally to send the equipped. To this end, we teach through the Bible on a verse-by-verse basis, starting from the beginning of a book and working our way through all the way till the end. It is our prayer that you would grow in the knowledge of Jesus Christ through his word. 